This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. Hello and welcome to the Noise Creators Podcast. I am your host, Jesse Cannon, and today I'm here with my guest, Steve Evitz. Steve is a producer you probably know from his work with Dillinger Escape Plan, Saves the Day, The Cure, Lifetime, Dillinger Escape Plan, Suicide Silence, Sepultura, At the Drive-In. I could just go on and on and on and on. He's worked with so many people, which is why you should go to his Noise Creators profile after this and read his discography and get to know him a little better. we got a great Spotify playlist of a lot of the great records he's done, and you can really learn a lot from it. I know I have. Steve is a really good friend of mine, one of my best friends, in fact, and I came up under him, and he's always been super, super knowledgeable compared to most producers, and I'm really glad you're all going to get to get a taste of that today since he doesn't do a lot of interviews, and we're trying to change that here, so I hope you enjoy I want to remind you my new book, Processing Creativity, is out on physical ebook and audiobook. If you enjoy this conversation, I guarantee you're going to enjoy what I, we talk about in the creative process in that book. So please check that out, and I hope you enjoy this. Hey, one second before we get started with this interview. Noise Creators is able to do these cool podcasts because we're a service, and we're trying to get the word out about our service to people. So if you enjoy this podcast, it's really, really important that you share it to people so more people can get to know what we're doing trying to connect musicians with producers to make better music and make better records for you all to listen to. So please, please, please help us out. If you like this and like what we're doing, share it, tweet it, Facebook it, Instagram it, Tumble it, whatever you like to do, do that. As well, we're going to start doing a really cool thing. If there's a great quote from these podcasts that you really enjoy, put it on a graphic, tweet it, Facebook it, take a picture of it, and send it to us at Noise Creators on every single one of the social networks. And what we're going to do is we're going to share the best ones. And if you're one of the best ones, we're going to send you a list of prizes we have. We have a bunch of cool, rare things from bands that aren't as much of a use to us. We have a couple of extras of rare pressings of vinyl, all sorts of cool stuff. You can choose from a list and we'll send that out to you for free if you share a really cool quote that we like and we use. Thanks so much for helping out and please, please, please help us spread the word on our service. Thanks. So where do you use your chain for recording your voice today? My chain is a, a Shure SM7 mm-hmm. into a Neve 1073 and into an 1176. Pretty classic recording chain. I was going to say, that, 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 that sounds like you right there. <laughs> that's not just me. That's a lot of yeah, people. Yeah, that's true. It's true. You, you really can't go wrong with, with that. Yes. So tell me about your background in music. I mean, I was never formally trained. I grew up around, you know, my sister was the one who took, like, she was the person. We grew up with a a grand piano in the house. My sister took lessons. My parents weren't very musical. My dad actually was a dance instructor when he was, uh, like, a teenager. So, I guess, rhythmically, I got that from him because my mother was essentially tone deaf. 
she couldn't sing very well. My sister took, you know, she's very, my sister's pretty musical too. She's musically inclined. She took a lot of classical piano lessons and whatever. And I would just kind of like, you know, jump on piano whenever I had a chance and just plink around and learn, you know, stuff by ear, trying to learn like Elton John songs or, or Beatles songs or whatever. I could kind of ham hand play, uh, you know, play piano that's really my musical background i mean i you know i took i took viola lessons when i was in like grade school hmm. you know, did, did i see you as a viola guy yeah no that was the one that interests me actually i would have thinking back now i would have think i would have um done cello mm-hmm. but since i i gravitated i realized that once i discovered that i could play bass and it was and it came very easy to me i mean i would I, that's that's one of those things i would still like to one of the one of these days try to actually pick up cello i never really i was okay you know i could i could scratch out a tune on viola but like i wasn't very you know, i wasn't very good at it mm. and uh, you know i took a couple of music courses in college you know the just music theory stuff and i know really rudimentary stuff but you know it's it's mostly like by ear for me and then you did go to school for music for a bit. Uh, yes, I went to uh, IAR, just mm-hmm. the same as you. I never actually graduated. Mm-hmm. But it's very, I just, very, very uh, encouraging for the kids listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, you know, I mean, it's I I actually had the John Worm, the recording studio handbook before I even went to IAR. Same. And you know, if I say to anybody, and even though, like, you know, some of it's, I don't know about subsequent editions. I know they're still being published, but I'm sure they updated it to include, you know, more of the modern thing. But the version I have doesn't have anything. It, it delves into digital recording just slightly, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that's it. And it's like digital tape recording, yep. you know, like multi-tracks, like the Mitsubishis and the Sonys of the world. I'd still say pick that book up because, you know, just to learn actual signal flow and yes. how to do how to do it as far as the engineering side of things that's all you really need to learn that's like the that's the general principles i know the people at the recording schools don't want to hear me say this but you know obviously you got to learn by doing and you know like places like full sale they're, they're way more i believe from what i understand it's a way more practical hands-on learn by doing kind of curriculum as opposed to iar which is like lectures the first semesters you're 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 doing yeah you're doing physics you're doing calculus it's like uh I want to like make music. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to, you know, and you know, I wish I would have paid attention to like the circuit design, basic circuit uh, electronic stuff. I know. I was so bad at because it though. Me too. Well, I'm a, I'm still like, I'm a, I, you know, I can, I can read a schematic to a degree mm-hmm. and you know, I remember the values on the resistors just because of the Broji Biv thing. Yep. yep. <laughs> but you know. Um, I'm a sloppy, terrible solder, but Same. maybe just because I haven't really practiced enough to, to do it. You know, it's just like anything. It's I don't know if it's the 10,000 hours thing, but it's like the... Yeah. It's just... I should probably get back into it more because I always want to talk about... You and I talk about like making guitar pedals or something. Yes. So. Okay, so keep going with you. What happens after college? After college, well, I was in bands. I started getting in bands in high school. After college, I was in a band. I joined a band... And we had a we had a uh, you know some some local success or regional success on the East Coast, and we had a record deal. We recorded our first demos at Tracks East in New Jersey when Tracks East was just a studio, a basement studio in Eric Rachel's dad's house. 
and I was fascinated by that. I actually recorded while I was in still high school. I recorded bass on a, a drum demo for this other guy, John Nicholson, and that's when I first met Eric. Mm. So then, when, when we were like, let's let's go to a studio, I said, hey, I know this place, Tracks East, blah blah blah. So we went to Tracks East. We did our demos. We got a you know we got some airplay on WSC. We had an acetate cut. Mm. And then we uh, we got some airplay on WSOU, which was like the local college station for anybody who doesn't know on the for anyone who's not on the up you know the the tri-state area. It's a college radio station that plays nothing but like punk and heavy metal. It's a Christian, ironically, it's a Christian yeah. university. But very, it's, uh, very reluctantly, they play punk and metal. Very, but they but they do, and they yes. they they still do to this day, and they yeah. support the indie scene, and it's really great. And we, you know, the scene at the time was like the pop metal kind of thing, and my band got got a lot of uh, notoriety and a lot of big following because of WSAU. Yeah, that was um, definitely the heyday of it. Mm-hmm. We got an indie deal with a with a BMG distributed label. We recorded our debut album at Tracks East. Then once the record company folded and like the band was already like band was still play, you know, periodically through through the ni- mid nineties. I my the whole thing was even back then. I was like, man, I hope the band makes it so I could like own a recording studio because mm. that's what I want. That's what I. That was always the band was you know a means to an end. Yes, it wasn't. It was not. The thing for me always was to be in the recording studio to make music. So okay, so then how? So then how do you get into the recording studio and start producing? So I got a little bit of recording gear, and I was making like our band's demos, and I was you know, and I had gotten pretty good at it. Like just it was a cassette eight track, the Tascam two thirty eight, mm-hmm. the cassette eight track. It was pretty remarkable feat of engineering at the time, actually, mm-hmm. to fit eight tracks on a on a that little tiny piece of tape. Yeah, with the the thing ended uh, with the band, and I literally went up to Eric at tracks and said, "Can I have a job?" Mm. <laughs> and I and I that was it. And the funny thing was, and Eric was like, you know, he knew and he heard like demos I had done with the band and everything, and I would get his opinion. I would like bounce stuff off of him, and he'd go, "Oh, this sounds really good, man. You really like you're doing a lot with like a little bit of gear, and it's like pretty pretty impressive and whatever." And I actually assisted him on the mix of our first record, so I got a I got a really good chance. And I was always like the guy. I was that guy in the band. Which yeah, now I, when I see this, when I see those guys in the bands now, I'm like, oh, this. Guy. Guy. I was no, that guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's and, and ironically, it's usually the bass players. The bass players are the ones who are like really into it. Not so much. It used to be. Now it's now it's everybody. But yeah, it used to be for some reason the bass players. I agree. Now it's more it's the songwriter because the songwriter has to large garage band. Right. Exactly. We can get back. We can get into that later with the bass player thing because I'm my the- you've heard my theories on this. But yes. So anyway, I was that guy. I was the first one there, the last one to leave, and I was always observing and watching what's going on. And I helped him on the mix. And then yeah, he's. I was like, I'll sweep the floors. I don't care. I you know I said to Eric and and he gave me a job like right away. Like not even a paid. It was not even like an internship. It was like I was staff. I was paid the first day, first session. I go in there with him. It was just a vocal overdub session or whatever. And Eric said, "Okay, here's the here's the patch bay." And I knew how that you know. And some people, what's amazing to me is some people don't know how to pat, how patch bays work. But he shows me the patch bay. He goes, "Okay, here's where this is. All right, all right, here's your chain. We're gonna plug this into this." I'm like, "Okay." And then he goes, "Bye." Nice. That Throw was him it. Right in. Sounds that like was, Eric. That was it. He was like, I'll see you later. I'm like, uh, I, I mean, it was vocal overdubs. I mean, I was yeah. punching in a track at a time. Mm-hmm. Not that difficult to do, really. But 
for, you know, 20, whatever, 21 year old, 22 year old, whatever, I was like freaking out, like, oh my God, you know, like probably trying to keep it together. But I, you know, I did the session and then did another one and did another one and started doing, you know, demos, uh, little seven inches with bands because you know tracks was you know really the only good studio in town and the, and at that point the new brunswick music scene was just you know yeah really that was the start of it like the early 90s like the the world you know the handy street and and the the roxy and the melody and like the core tavern which is still there thankfully but the other everything else is gone that new brunswick music scene with Rutgers there being there and like we were the only studio really good studio in town there was a couple others that were close by but they were dinky dinky demo studios with not real equipment right right or decent enough but it wasn't like track tracks at the point at that point was like the place you know yes for sure so i started recording you know i recorded the first lifetime seven inch that was 1991 mm -hmm. you know what i mean like it just started with that and then you know i start you know, band start you know at first uh i i brought in a little bit because the 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 pop metal scene was still there, still hanging on. And like bands would come to me because my band was popular and bands would come because of my association with the band and, and, and the studio and the studio recorded the record. And yeah. Jer Jer Jersey, Jersey had a good, good half-life of bands pretending Nirvana didn't happen around that time. Yes, they did mm -hmm. very much, very much. I started getting some, I did some, a lot of good demo work then with, with like that kind of scene and then crossing over and then working with a lot of the punk bands in that scene you know, with Lifetime there, and then Vision was another one. That was mm -hmm. one of the early ones. And they did the first record with Eric, like, a year before, and then we started working on their, their follow-up. And then I started, like, it was, like, a, not even, like, nine months into me working there. I did, um, there was also a, a burgeoning death metal scene mm -hmm. at that time. Human Remains, uh, Incantation, this other band called Demonacy. What was the other one? Ripping, Ripping Corpse. But there was a there was a scene, and I did a split seven inch with Incantation and the band Mortician, and they liked working with me. And I wasn't really exposed to death metal until I did that record. That's funny. It was like I liked heavy music, like as far as like my my thing of like oh like scary heavy music was like Slayer. That was it. Yes. That was my re that was my reference. Mm -hmm. So when I was working on and then so they came to me and they said okay we have a little deal with Relapse Records. We're gonna do a record. Do you want to you know we're gonna book time. So I all of a sudden that was the first record I produced. And my whole thing was at the time like I'm like. Well, I know Slayer, so I'm just going to make them sound... I'm going to try and make it sound like Slayer, mm -hmm. you know? And obviously, it didn't sound like Slayer. Yes, <laughs> and obviously. We subsequently, and we subsequently remixed the record because I, I made it too clean, as opposed to, according to the guitar player. So they remixed it and put, like, a ton of bottom end on everything, and it sounds like a, just a big, m mushy mud thing. But, you know, the funny thing is, like, Dan uh, Kenny from Suicide Silence later on, he goes... Oh man, you 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 produced Incantation. I love that record. It's so, <laughs> it's so fucking brutal, and it's like, all right, yeah. <laughs> you, oh, oh, you, you never know which one it's gonna be. You never know the record. You're like, oh my god, I think this sounds to me, to my taste, this sounds horrible. But yep. to someone else, it's like the greatest thing ever. I so you, you, it's just it's just one of those things. It just goes to show you, n you never, never, never know. It really is true, and people don't think about that. That you got to try hard every time, even when you you're not on the same vibe as the band. You got to put mm -hmm. your all into it. I agree. So tell me what else happens. And then just it it what happens is it, it's just you know more more and more 
demos more and more. Oh, the next thing, the next big break for my career was uh, Megaforce Records, which was still really active at the time. John Johnny Z. Mm-hmm. Uh, they started using us as a demo studio a pre-production studio for some of their bands. And I worked with this one band called Lucy Brown. And then I recorded, I did the pre-production for this band, Mind Funk, which was Pat from Uniform yeah. Choice and, and John Monty. And so I do the demos for the second record, which was called Dropped. They did with Terry Date up in Seattle. And it was... Uh, I was real into that record. Were you? Yeah. Oh, okay. okay. I, was like, I was in like seventh grade, you know? Yeah. Well... Well, also, you know, and I didn't even know it at the time, you know, it's like they, they brought in a couple of Seattle guys on the record, Mindfunk, mm-hmm. Jason uh, Jason Evermore, who yep. was in Soundgarden and Nirvana. Yep. So I didn't even realize that I had that little piece of history until until much later, until I got into like that scene and then go, oh my God, that's the guy who I recorded with Mindfunk. You know? funny. So Johnny Z came down while I was doing the, the Megaforce, the demos with, with Mindfunk. He said, by the way, Steve, I have this other band, M.O.D., you're familiar with them? I'm like, yeah, of course I'm. Well, I knew S.O.D., you know, I was familiar with the the first M.O.D. record. Mm -hmm. I met with Billy, he came down, and yeah, and that was the second record I ever produced was M.O.D., (laughs) Rhythm of Fear. Nice. Yep. And that was like a real, that was like my, even though Incantation was the first record I produced, M.O.D. was the first real, like, oh my god, I'm producing this record. Like, like Incantation, I produced it, but it was more like, they booked time at Tracks East with me. Yes. That was it. It wasn't like, this was like, I actually got paid as a producer, I got points on the record, I, you know, I had to sign a producer agreement, like, mm-hmm. actually, like, I'm producing this record. And, totally. uh, and I, the first record I ever saw a royalty from, and mm. I still get, I still get like seven cent checks, which is amazing because it costs, le- it costs more to, uh, to mail the check, cost, yeah. Yeah. Than to actually, the, like literally I have, I, I have one on the wall. I put them up on the wall. I never even cash them. Cause I just think it's hilarious. Like getting like a 17 cent royalty check. Like I got royal, decent royalties from it, you know, back when I, back in, you know, 20 years ago, but mm-hmm. Now it's like whatever, you know what I mean? But it's like, it's just funny that I get, I still get a check. They'll actually mail me a physical check for 40, whatever. How much does a stamp cost now? Yeah, I think it's like 38 (laughs) cents probably. Yeah, for a 17 cent check, yeah. Nice. Okay, so you're working at Trax East. Working at Trax East. Tons of bands coming through, tons of bands coming through. This one other New Brunswick band called Dead Guy. Yeah, this is Uh, how I hear of you. Right. The Dead Guy was the first. That was like that was the introduction to everything because it was MOD. Then I did another band for Century Media called Demolition Hammer, another like real mm-hmm. heavy thrashy kind of band. And then I start doing these other things. I start so Dead Guy. I start doing like the Dead Guy. You know, we start doing demos. Then we do a seven inch. Then we did another seven inch. Then they put out an EP with the two seven inches together on uh, Engine Records. Mm-hmm. Then we record what became Fixation on a Coworker. We record the record. Engine didn't pay their bills, which I think uh, at the time they were notorious for. Yes, they were. Uh, they didn't pay the bill. They didn't pay the bill. They never paid the bill. The masters sat at Trax East for six months. And then Dave Dave Rosenberg, the drummer for Dead Guy, said, Oh, uh, I just t- I was talking with Tony at Victory, and I had no, no idea who Victory Records was at the time. He goes, Yeah, um, Tony at Victory is going to actually put the record out. It's like, Okay, cool. You know, Eric was like, Great. You know, the bill's paid. Fantastic. Victory put out that record, and it obviously did really well, made a lot of noise. And then Tony Victory started sending me bands. And it was like, you know, it literally rapidly went to. Um, 
By the Grace of God, Snapcase, Hatebreed, All Out War, Buried Alive, you know, just like one after the other, like two, two um, Cause for Alarm records, so OS 101, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, like just, I mean, I did like 15 records for, for Victory in like a very short span of time. And that was really the, that was the, the big start of it. Like the, the dead guy got me into victory and then the snap case progression through unlearning really kind of, and the hatebreed record too. Those two really like, uh, kind of put me to the, I guess the next level, if you want to call it that, you know? All right. So then the next level happens and you eventually leave tracks East. Tell me about that and catch me up to the future or to the, pre- I should say the freight future, the present day <laughs> present. Well, that's like, yeah, I got, I left tracks like 18 years ago. That is true. I mean, just started getting, you know, uh, busier and busier Casey from the band, Amen, who were on Roadrunner at the time produced by Ross Robinson. He heard of me from the Snapcase record. It all goes back to like the victory stuff and the snap case and hate breed, you know, and he loved the Snapcase record and he said, Hey, do you want to mix this record? You know, and it had been already like mixed twice and they, they, he kept, uh, you know, pulling the plug on the mix and I did a test mix for that. And then I, uh, I got the record. I met Ross like the second day of mixing and Ross is like, Oh, you don't have a manager. He puts me on the phone with his, for, for, for the, for the listeners, Ross Robinson. Oh, I, yeah. I said that before. Yeah. Ross. Yeah. Um, so Ross just said, yeah, oh, you know, we got, we, we hit it off right away. We, uh, Ross is like, oh, you don't have a manager. He puts me on the phone with his manager at the time, this guy, John Reese. And John's like, hey buddy. Okay. I'll, I'll manage you. I'm like, uh, okay. I hang up the phone. I'm like, I guess I have a manager now. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. And then we started just, you know, working on stuff together. Glassjaw. We did a track without the drive-in before he did Relationship of Command, which actually the song wound up on the subsequent uh, re-releases of yes. Relationship called Catacombs. I saw that. that we I did saw, saw, at, saw that the other day. We did, up at, we did that up at, uh, at River Sound where I mixed Glassjaw and where we also cut that other glass jaw track called Convectuoso, which mm-hmm. wound up on the re-release of Everything You Ever Wanted to Know. And then, yeah, I just, I started like getting a lot of gigs away from tracks. So it just started, it became, you know, like, and you know, obviously Eric needed me there at the studio and I, you know, I, he couldn't really, he needed another person besides himself to run the place. So, you know, we just wound up parting ways at first wasn't amicable at first, but we, you know, I, I subsequently mended fences with him very quickly because I, I would have, if I never mended fences with Eric, Rachel, that would have been devastating to me because uh, he meant so much to my, to me, my career, my life is, uh, as a friend, mentor, everything, you know, I mean, he's like a member, he's like part of, he's, I consider him family. You know? Yes. So, so. You do that, and then eventually, after all that work, you move to California. I do. I uh, I did, <laughs> and I still am here. Yes. Uh, I wound up, you know, I was still had my place in Jersey, and I was out here so much working, and I, I, I really just don't like winter. So <laughs> I would always try to get my manager. Yeah. Makes, makes well, two of us. I just put up with it. You put up? Well, I put up with it for a long time. I had many, many years of winter and I was just, that was enough, you know, and I, I, I would usually have my manager try to book me gigs in LA during the winter. <laughs> so I would have to, I mean, I managed to avoid it a couple of years in a row. Mm-hmm. And then one year I came back and I had it. And then the last year I was, I, I technically lived in Jersey. I added up the actual number of years, a number of days in a calendar year. I was actually in 
my place in Jersey and it was 24. Oh God, I remember that. In a man. calendar year. And I yeah. said, okay, I think I should just, I'm at, who, who am I kidding here? I'm just, yeah. gonna, I'm just going to move. I remember. So I moved and I've been here now 15 years. So, and, uh, so why don't you tell us about your studio out there next? The studio I'm in is a two room facility. It's called the Omen Room. I have one side of it. I have the B room, which my control room is a, you know, fairly large control room with three ISO booths, one large enough to do, to hold a drum kit, but I generally track drums in the A room because that's the actual like real live room. So when I'm doing a record, I'll track drums, I'll track the band, uh, basic tracks in the A room. And then after that, we move over to the B room. I mean, I've also tracked on a lot of records I've tracked at other studios, track drums at other studios. I just don't, you know, like some people, you know, like I literally could track everything here, but the, I, I prefer much more ambient drum sound. Uh, if there's one thing that like is a constant on me, I really love like just drums that like you could feel in a room and feel them breathing and moving moving and not so much of the 70s dry drum sound. I mean that's cool too, but mm -hmm. I much prefer I much prefer real ambience as opposed to like I mean you know you can always add reverb obviously, but I prefer real ambience and then augment it with with uh with reverbs and whatever. Nice. So tell me what instruments you play. My primary instrument is bass. I you know, I mean, I said in my start, I, I'm a ham and egger, what they call on piano. I mean, I can fake it pretty well. Mm -hmm. And like people are like, oh, you're a good piano player. I'm like, no, I just, I just fake it really well. I can, I can do a decent job on the songs that I know and I can, you know, come up with some ideas and whatever. But my primary instrument is really, is really bass. I mean, I can play a little guitar. <laughs> I don't think I could play viola anymore, even though that was the first instrument I ever learned. You know, I can tap, I could tap a beat on the drums, but I'm not, I'm not a drummer. I can actually program pretty good drum parts can i can have i'm good with ideas as far as drums mm -hmm. but physically physically i'm not i don't have the skill set i hear you all right i'm gonna open a big can of worms with you sure okay. what's what's the coolest piece of gear you think your studio has right now what, what are you in love with right now oh god i know i i, I this is, asking you this question is like a brutal one i know for you god obviously neve 1073s are always great <laughs> i mean i love my neotech sidecar console that i have with it's a 12 channel console and it's uh, 18 inputs on mixdown that I use to actually sum everything through. That in conjunction with the Dangerous 2 bus, I really love it. I love the, I mean, you know, obviously I use it to, to track with as well. I track drums through mm -hmm. it, I use it to sum. I don't usually track guitars through it as far as like the, using the mic pre's, but I do use it for, because I'll, a lot of times using multiple mics and multiple preamps, I'll, I'll use it as a summer. Mm hmm. I'll use the busing on it. It's a four bus console. So I'll, I'll go through the preamps into that and then some through that. I just feel like it's funny because like I didn't think about it until after I got it. I got the opportunity to get the console. And then when I started mixing through it, it immediately felt similar to me or familiar to me because, you know, when we had the Neoteca tracks towards the end of my, I run a tracks, like just the way the mix bus behaves and the way you can, it's just a pretty wide open sound. Hi, I'm going to just take one second to tell you about something that if you're listening to this podcast, you will probably be interested in. Noise Creators put out a book called The 30-Minute Guide to Getting More Fans. It's by me, Jesse Cannon. I wrote a book called Get More Fans, The DIY Guide to the New Music Business. That's been one of the best-selling books on how to build a fan base for your band. That book is really long and detailed. What we decided to do, though, is make a smaller version of that book that you can read in under 30 minutes that tells you all about how you can 
build a fan base for your band. I'm sure you've noticed there's been far too many people popping up in your Facebook news feed slinging information on how to build a fan base for a subscription or $100 or something, but Noise Creators was founded because we saw the potential to make the music world a better place. When I started writing about the music business over eight years ago, I always wanted to just teach all the bands that I thought had potential how to do this because I saw too many bands not build themselves up that I thought were the world should hear. So this book has all that knowledge that I learned building fan bases for bands, producing and working the music business for years. I managed a bunch of successful bands in the past, and this is how I got them to be more than a band that just their hometown knew about. So if you head over to noisecreators.com under the more tab that says ebook, you can get it there for free. All you have to do is enter your email address or your Twitter address. Thanks for taking the time to check this out. Nice. So... In the podcast, we use the example of on one side of the spectrum, you got Albini. The other side, you got John Feldman. How involved do you like to get in songwriting on most records? As far as the songwriting, I'm not per se a songwriter, but what my whole, my skill set is, is really on the production side as far as like, I'm not a songwriter producer, I'm but I'm a producer producer. I, I will, I'd say, if you want to say it, the, you go the, say the George Martin route. I mean, I'll always reference him because George, I mean, he could obviously write a score. I'm not a scorer. I'm not a, I'm not classically trained. I can't chart out an an orchestral part, but the way his job was with the band was always to open up for possibilities and say, what about this here? What about this here? Okay, let's try this. Let's try this. Let's try this. I'm more facilitator of trying to like get past mental blocks and and just trying to to push forward with the best possible version of what what the band does mm-hmm. and i can write parts i'll write a part here a part there but as far as like writing a song and just giving it to the band and go here's this i mean i i you know i've written songs in the past but generally i'm more of like taking what they have and seeing what we can do to make it as best as it can be i like that what do you think you bring to records most often that I think uh, uh, objectivity, enthusiasm, creativity. I think that's that's really that's it. It's just really delving into you know trying to trying to really ease through, especially when I work with younger bands who haven't really done this as far as like with a real producer in a real studio before. Trying to facilitate as best as possible and make them comfortable and and get the get the absolute best out of them and uh, make them and push them past their limits for sure. I think that's one of the things you are best at. Yeah, because you know so many people they I feel like they just give up too easily, mm-hmm. especially. I mean, now they give up. I think before they used to give up as far as like because it was a confidence thing. Now that a lot of people give up because they know you can fix it, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is not my favorite thing in the world. I much prefer getting it from the player. It's, it's just like anything. It's always the source. What's a common mistake you see bands do before getting to the studio? Not being aware of what they're doing or what the other person's doing. Just being aware is a very, very much of a, in a nutshell, that's the way I, I like to say it. It's, it's, you know, think but don't think mm. kind of thing where it's like, but be, it's like, it's not so much focusing. Like when people, when people get in the studio and they're, they're trying to perform and they're nervous and you try and point out something that they're doing that's 
that's making them screw up or whatever. It's making that's make that's inhibiting them getting the best performance they can they can do. It's it's a question of like it's like don't concentrate so much on it, but be aware of it. And then that 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 applies to even before they they get in here and in the rehearsal studio, not being aware of what each other's doing. Not really like it, you're not really functioning organically as a as a whole like a cohesive unit. They're focusing on themselves. And what their part is. And my thing is to say, hey, pick your head up, look around, listen, observe, notice, you know, be aware and be present and then push together. Does that make sense? It does. I like it. Okay. Um, All right. Good. What's a smart thing bands do during the recording process? Well, smart things is is preparedness. Like when, when bands are, you know, come in and their gears, I mean, simple. If their gear is set up correctly, guitar players, like set up your guitars, get your guitar set up. If you're tuning in, you know, drop Z minus, don't come in with tens on your guitars because they'll never stay in tune. You know, <laughs> like the, you know, stuff like that. How, your amps. Oh, your amp is the tubes are microphonic. Oh, really? You never noticed? Again, noticing, paying mm -hmm. attention. Don't just, just be in your own little bubble. Like be receptive to everything around you. And like, and that, that includes like, oh, my amp sounds funny. What the hell? And like get in here and, you know, so, you know, thankfully most of the time now I, I deal with, you know, I'm dealing with professional touring bands and they're, for the most part, they're, they're right on the right on the ball with a lot of it and you know a lot of bands the wonder years for example when we did we would do the records you know soupy was very dan campbell soupy the, the singer for the wonder years if anybody doesn't know he's so meticulous with his preparedness i mean like he would come in and go like on the not the last record we did but the one before it we recorded the record in order the order mm -hmm. was already predetermined he knew like and he would chart out like oh this song's in in a minor this song's in in d flat this song's in like he'd have he'd have a chart written out of every song tempos that that they gen you know they the least that they wrote with you know and we would edit it we would whatever edit it to change it in pre-production or whatever but he had it where it's like here's the tempo here's the key here's you know and then like to know how things fit together as far as like a picture of an overall record which i think is great and i think that when bands are trying if bands are making singles that's fine too and that's a different different theory but when bands are making albums to make an album that actually takes you on a journey and really you know is thought out to that level where it just it, it really reels you in and, and envelops you and and draws you in and, and has you like really paying attention from beginning to end that's something special. I agree. How about a smart thing or a big mistake people do with vocals? Oh, I, I know mean, you're. I know you're a vocal guy, so I wanted to bust this one out. I am. I am a vocal guy. Um, to me, uh, as far as like smart thing, preparedness again, not thrashing your voice, not going out and drinking the night before. Mm, mm, <laughs> like, yes. Learning how, you know, your voice, uh, it's voice is a muscle. It's an instrument. You know, you got to take care of it. Uh, you know, if you come in the studio with rusty strings in your guitar, it's not going to sound good. If you come in with rust on your vocal cords because you were out partying two nights ago and smoking Marlboro Reds before you get in here, you know, unless that's your thing, unless Marlboro Reds are, you know, part of the way your voice sounds. And it's like, that's the other thing. It's like, I get guys that, 
you know, are smoking and then they're like singers who are smokers and they're like, I'm going to quit right before we start recording. I'm like, <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. You got no idea what that's about to do to your body, buddy. Yeah. No, no, no. Why don't you let, let's, let's stay the course and why don't you just <laughs> do that until and afterwards? Fine. But don't yeah. do it a week, the two days or a week before we get in the studio because your voice is going to just, you know, revolt. You know, it's not. I just found a picture from when I quit smoking of what was I was coughing out of my body and I, oh. I I, I feel like I should put that in uh, up in the studio to remind people. Yeah, exactly. That's actually a good idea. Yeah, Dis this is disgusting, this, but good. This is this is what your shower is going to look like in the morning if you actually shower. Yeah, if that's yeah, that's mm -hmm. a big if. Yes. And then uh, you know, it, in there, like learning proper mic technique is a, mm. is a big one. Learning how to work the mic, work, learning how to you know knowing when to lean in, when to pull back, enunciation. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I've worked with plenty of Marble Mouth singers. But it's like, to me, you know, where you don't take them out of their element, but if you could try and pull out a little more enunciation clarity out of things, I think, especially on some, on a lot of things, like, you know, catching, if you can actually catch the, you know, a lot of times you're catching the emotion and you're catching the vibe without even knowing what the, vo what the lyric is. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times what the lyric is is so important. So it's like, you want to make sure that that's understood. And then when you're dealing with it in the heavy world, I think to me... When a vocal is like a heavy screen vocal, if it's clear, it sounds, to me, it sounds heavier than it does when it's just like, you know, like just, you know, that can work too. But to me, the, the clarity actually adds heaviness. Yes, I agree. So what happens when you and a band disagree about something? Well, my thing always, always and always and forever is I'll always tell them, ultimately, it's your record. You can tell me to F the right, you know, you can tell me to, to fuck off. I don't know if you curse on the podcast or not. You tell me yes, they, yes. the band. Okay. It's, it's my podcast. What do you think is happening? That's true. Okay. All right. Good. <laughs> well, I tell the band, I was like, you can tell me at any time to fuck right off. Like, I am not going to be offended by it. I will tell you when I, I will tell you when I disagree or and then here's why, or I feel strongly about something. But ultimately, always, it's always the band's record. It's not about me. It's about them. I'm trying to make them the best thing that that they have and sometimes I mean, there's been plenty of times where i've disagreed strongly and then afterwards i'm like oh they were right and it's like you know you can't you know that there it's it's hard not to sometimes you know your ego gets bruised and whatever but it's like you get over it because you're there to serve you're there to make the band's record it's not my record if it was my record and i say that what, what i say okay i want it to be like this that's a different story it's not my record it's their record that's always what i tell them nice so let's go to a different section of questions I'm going to get quick feelings because I know you could go all day. So quick feelings. Sorry, I'm, I'm long-winded. I know. I'm sorry. Well, I know how, I know how long-winded you get about this stuff because we talk about it. So do amp simulators dash reamping have a role in your productions? They can. They usually don't, but they definitely can. Uh, especially if when I'm mixing and if a band has, I always tell the, when, when people are sending me stuff for mixing and I have a list that I uh, file prep sheet and I always say, if you're using amp sims, print it, get a tone you like, print it. You know, they can send me the DIs, but for the most part, I want people to commit to a tone. And for the most part with the amp sims, generally the amp sim, it's like one thing when it's like a, a recorded uh, track, sometimes if they're using bad mic techniques, a bad amp, whatever, it's like generally the amp sims all 
sound decent enough that mm-hmm. I want them to commit. So, but as far as on my end of it, I mean, I've used them. I can use them. It's a, it's a, I won't I my ch- my general preference is not to use them as a primary tone, like a rhythm guitar tone. I definitely would appreciate them for like texturing things, like sometimes like the the fractal stuff with like the effects and whatever. You can get some really cool layering on some productions. I don't mind them on guitar solos. Mhm so much because there's there's a thing that they that that's there that actually especially against against real rhythm guitars the sims can sometimes sound have like a smoothness to it i picked this up from like a years ago from uh, one of the bands i work with back in the day symphony x like a prog metal band and we used real amps for the guitar for the rhythm guitars but Mike, the guitar player, insisted on using uh, a Rockman, believe it or not, for guitar Oh, I remember service. when you did this, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he loved it because he's like, it sounds like Alan Holdsworth. It's like a real smooth, like a horn kind of, like almost like a horn, like a honky horn kind of tone. And it's just, I love the way it sounds for like like all those really fast, like sweeping, you know, arpeggiated stuff. And like, and and I, I, you know, he did it and I was like, yeah, it does sound like that. It sounds pretty cool. So, you know, I'm not against it. I like them for, for effects on vocals. But in general, you know, if I always have my choice, I'm always going to go to an amp. But, you know, I'm not going to, you know, if someone's really like, man, I, I love this tone. It's like, okay, well, let's see what we can do. Let's try it. I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm open for anything, you know. How about sampled-midi drums? Not a big fan of midi drums. Samples, I will from time to time use them to augment drums in the mix, but... It's only there to add like a impact or a weight to the drums and not so much that that's the main thing you hear. If I, unless it's like really, again, it's really, really terribly recorded or the drummer's tapping and it's like, you can't even make, it's like the hi-hats louder than the snare kind of thing. Mm, yes. Yeah. Then sometimes you got to go to that, to that well. But like for the most part, like if it's there to like, just add a thing or like to like sample will feed the reverb as opposed mm-hmm. to the, the reverb on the snare, like the the sa- snare sample can feed the reverb to give that kind of cleaner, like the reverb, so it's you don't have a lot of cymbals going into the reverb, so it doesn't wash out the mix. Like that's a kind of trick that I like. MIDI drums I'm not a huge fan of because they just, you know, the, they don't breathe. Like I said before, I just like drums that actually breathe and the there's a there's a definite feeling to the to the weight of the recording that it that MIDI drums don't generally give. I mean, you know, I've, I've mixed plenty of records with MIDI drums and, you know, I think they come out good. It's again, not my preference, but I'm not opposed to it. Nice. How about pitch correction? Pitch correction. I avoid it at all costs. Sometimes it's necessary. And, you know, for me, it's, uh, it's, if I do it, it's, uh, moving a note here, moving a note there, or, you know, moving a note towards, you know, I'll use Melodyne or even Auto-Tune, but in manual mode, and or even just pitch. I'll pitch a thing or pitch in time or like an offline one. I move the note towards. I'll move it towards the note, but I don't like going like flat, like straight up, like straight Auto-Tune where it's like perfect because perfect is kind of boring and it, it basically sucks. How about some favorite soft synths? I haven't really delved too much into it, really. I, I don't really use uh, I don't really use soft synths besides like the stuff that's you know I have like it's not even a soft synth. It's like Velvet, like the electric piano mm. sim and inside Pro Tools. You know the, the the soft stuff that like the 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 tone wheel organ, the stuff that's in Reason. There's uh, I like the with the Maelstrom, you yes, know, stuff like that. But I'm not a big uh, I'm not really a big synth guy. 
So, do you master your own records? I generally do not. I like to prefer. I like to defer to the to the mastering guys because it's the same thing as like the same reason why you know bands don't produce themselves. You know, for me, I'd like to have an objective ear to. You know, I think it's. I mean, I, I suppose I could, and I, I've done a little mastering for other people from time to time but i don't consider that my my strong suit so i i I prefer to defer to someone who's really got a lot of experience doing it not something that i'm I'm supposed to getting into but i prefer the the objectivity of someone else at the end totally so how long ideally do you work on tracking a song for and how long ideally does it take you to mix a song tracking a song from start to, if i had to do it like i don't usually do like just a song start to finish yes. but i can usually do song start to finish in like a day and a half i'd say two days max and then another day to mix it in general you know it's like if if i'm mixing and a mix is already set up then i can get i can get two a day that's a different story but if it's starting from scratch, then yes, it would generally be like, you know, I'd say a day, a day and a half to day and a half to two days full to track one and then a, a day to mix. Nice. So what's a good lesson you've learned from another producer? I mean, you know, working with uh, someone like Ross Robinson, you know, learning about the meaning behind a song and how that affects the performance. That's a very interesting thing that uh, I observed Ross would get into it and really delve deep. And, you know, it doesn't always work, but it's a, it's a pretty, it's a fascinating thing to know that, you know, because songs, um, I mean, unless, you know, I mean, I've worked with bands that the songs are about nothing, you know, like Mm -hmm. there's, we all know those people, but generally songs are a very person, usually for the most part, they come from a very personal place to somebody. So learning about that, and le- learning how that affects everybody in the room and how it'll affect how they actually attack it and perform it is a really fascinating thing to me. Nice. What's one of the uh, best moments you've had in the studio? Oh, God, there's so many for so many different reasons. I mean, you want to say, <laughs> and you were witness to part of it, you know, the six months I spent in London working with The Cure, mm-hmm. that's one giant <laughs> amazing moment. Yeah, was that was that was uh you know to be there working with with one of my favorite artists to be working at one of the most iconic studios on <laughs> tracking on the 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 desk that Dark Side of the Moon was recorded and mixed on like you know just all of it together it's like whoa yeah. <laughs> okay <laughs> yeah never ne- ne- never stop having awe from that from those months nope. That was one of those things where even Ross and I would look at each other and go, damn it, you know, how many times were you like, oh, God, I have another month on this record. And like we're like, damn it, we only have another month left on this record. Uh, yeah, uh. We didn't want it. To, I didn't want it to end. Well, I wanted to sleep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I hear you, but man, I, I didn't I didn't care. I was so amped up the whole time that Oof. I was on. I mean, we were on. I, I was on every night. I think we were on four or five hours of sleep. Well, That's this- it. The espresso did not help. No, it didn't. <laughs> How about one of the worst moments of what you learned from it? <laughs> well, my I always go back to the the time that uh, a band, and this was like before I was really like really producing it out of Tracks East, but mm-hmm. I was just engineering in the band. The bands would. Eric would have this ledger, like the the schedule book, and he would say, "Show." There would be a band penciled in, and there would either be an S or an E, in, and he would circle it. Like, okay, that's my session. 
Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't even remember the name of the band because I blocked it out. But I started working with this band. They were in here. They were from rural Pennsylvania. Well, their band came in and they start setting up, and I see swastikas painted on, oh, on their amps. Oh yeah, I forgot. I forgot and the story. There and they start singing lyrics about killing Jews and about white power. And I had to call Eric and tell him these guys are. Uh, like straight up neo-nazi skinheads and i can't work with them and we had to like eric had to come down to the studio and we had to like tell them to leave and they and they were actually nice about it the funny thing was they were actually nice about it they're like we understand mm. yeah it's cool like, well, we can't we can't that's we, part of we the, don't su- the, the ed the edgelord needs somebody to react badly to them that's why they do it so makes right. sense yeah yeah, it was really crazy. They were, they were actually, like, really nice about it, but I was like, I just don't feel comfortable working with you guys. I'm sorry. I'm Jewish. I mean, it's not even, like, a practicing Jew, but, like, at the mm-hmm. same time, it's like, I just didn't feel comfortable about the whole scene, so I, yes. I, I, I had to have them. I told them to leave. <laughs> Every, I, I, so, all, the pe- all, all the people are listening are so confused how Evitz is a Jewish name. <laughs> <laughs> well, we know about that. Yes. But, <laughs> yeah. So I don't know what I learned about it. You know, I mean, I guess you can't really <laughs> vet. You can't, you can't vet your, uh, well, your clients. Get, get, you know. get, get, get demos. There, 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 there's the lesson learned. Get, that's true. That, you know what? That's a great, I didn't even think about that. That's a fantastic idea. If I heard them and knew that their demos were singing about white power and killing Jews, maybe I wouldn't have, uh, but we wouldn't have booked them. So. All right. Let's get into a little bit of your personal taste. Tell me about a perfect record someone else has made and what makes it perfect. You know, I thought about this before and The Wall by Pink Floyd. What makes it perfect, it's not even, I mean, sonically, it's pretty damn great. Uh, The songs are amazing, but it's that same thing that I talk about. All these great records that take you on a journey and obviously it's a concept record so it, it's supposed to it's there's a narrative that that kind of runs through the album i mean you just i used to like put that on and put on headphones and just sink into the record and you literally lose yourself in the thing and it just and you just you come out the other side you're like Whew, you know that's to me like i mean like how, how much better could it get from than that you know what i mean like there's obviously i have other records like that but Mm. If I had to pick one, I mean, and, and they're, Pink Floyd's not even my favorite band, but man, that record just like, it's just unbelievable. Dark Side of the Moon's another one. That's the same thing. Those two together, like they, uh, Dark Side of the Moon sonically is even more. Sonically is just gorgeous. Yeah. Is, is ridiculous. But those records, like they, they, from the second you get in there, it's like, it just, you start and you just can't, you're gripped. You just can't even like turn away. You have to like listen through it the whole way through. And to be able to get a, an album that ha, that has a narrative like that, and that that just pulls you in, and doesn't let go until you're until you come out the other side, is like that's like something I think. I mean, for me, that's something I would eternally strive for. I, I am with you. All right, let's go through five records that really shaped you in your musical growth. Well, I just named two of them. <laughs> I just named two. All of right. Them. Aside from those. Aside from those. Come on. Aside come on. from those. Oh man. You know I'm not going to let you cheat. You know I never let you. Oh God! I mean, I'd have to say three be- three Beatles albums. <laughs> that's no, not, that's cheating too. That's not cheating. Those are. I mean, I'm telling you what. Cheating. I'm, how is that cheating? Cheating. How is that cheating? All right, I'm not letting you go on this. You're going to give me five different bands. Oh my God! I wrote down those, but that's <laughs> now I have to think of more. You told me to write stuff down. And I didn't. You know, like... oh, oh, oh. This is this is, this is called improvisation, okay. Evans. You know, you know, right. you know what that is. Yeah. Okay. 
All right. If I had to pick one of the Beatles records, I'd have to say Rubber Soul is my... That's my all-time favorite because that that's my literally earliest, earliest musical memory. It's part of my DNA. My parents had that had the 8-track and dating it, but they had the 8-track in there. Oh, I remember you, you said that, the, yeah. In their car, in the family car, and it never left it. So, I mean, like, my earliest possible musical memory are those songs on that record. And, you know, the Beatles definitely shaped a lot of what I think about, and it's the reason I wanted to be a producer. Because that, that was the other one that I, I mean, when I would p pull it up, when I was saying about it, that, like, I had this old Panasonic stereo that had, mm. that had separate volume knobs for left and right speaker like left mm. and right channel and then you had a mono switch so the mono switch would put both left and right up the middle and then mm -hmm. i could actually turn down the drums by turning the left knob down and just hear the vocals like on certain beatles songs mm -hmm. so it was what partly what made me want to like got me fascinated with recording was like like those records where the you know drums were left or everything was left and the vocal was right and i could actually like whoa i could solo the vocal basically that's funny. Yeah. Okay, keep going for me. Well, do I have to? Do I? I can't pick one of those two, the Pink Floyd records. <laughs> you can. You can. You, I'll get. I'll give you one Pink Floyd record. I would actually have to say Dark Side Over the Wall. So it's the Beatles' Rubber Soul, Dark Side Over the Wall, because Sonic. I, I, again, I, 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 I never knew that you would. I agreed about these. Oh really? Yeah, these are mine too. Oh my God! I mean, Dark Side of the Moon is like one of the most sonically brilliant records of all time. Yeah. Yes. I'd have to say uh, the Clash Combat Rock. See, now we're now we're in disagreement. Oh. And because that was, but um, again, that was like my earliest, almost my earliest foray into punk, mm. you know. But I'd have to say, oh, you know what? Let's 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 kill the Clash Combat Rock. Let's say okay. ba Bad Brains Eye Against Eye for sure. Mm. Uh, that was my true, really like that's what got me into the whole, like started uh, understanding, you know, punk. And that was because Vernon Reed from Living, Living Color, when I saw Living Color played in this small venue in Neptune, New Jersey, called the Green Parrot. Oh my God! I'm just, like just got a flashback of what the ads looked like in the aquarium. Mm -hmm. Living Color played the Green Parrot, and there was not even a stage; they were on the floor playing. And damn. Uh, and Vernon Reed would talk to the audience and say, "If you like us, go listen to the Bad Brains and Fishbone." So I said. Huh. So I said, okay, <laughs> and I got eye against eye, and I can immediately see where they, you know, where Living Color got, like, a lot of their deal from. I mean, Cult of Personality is like a Bad Brains riff, basically. Yeah, you're right. I never thought oh, of that. Oh, 100%. <laughs> yeah. So, going later, I would have to say, okay, Computer. I mean, I know that's more of an obvious gimme. Yeah, it's fine. But Important records. Important record, sonically, finding out later that they, they mixed it manually with no automation in like two days makes me kind of sick to my stomach. Because <laughs> I'm like, how do I... It is insane. How do I, how do I even do that? Yeah, two and a half hours of song, longest mix. That's just, you know... That's getting it right. That's, that's getting it right at the source is what it is. Is what yeah. I, you know, it's the thing that I always try to preach to everybody. It's the source, the source, the source, the source. Always. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't want to say refuse Shape of Punk to come because it's. I'm sure everybody else, how many people on your podcast have already said that? Dude, it's uh, shockingly enough, it, it, that's not actually that common. I mean, it was one for me, but... Yeah, you know, that definitely... And then another one that shaped... It's not even so much my favorite record. I mean, I love the record. It's But another, the last one that would shape... I'd say sh a lot... Would shape... Uh, it made... A, it, it definitely influenced a lot of decisions back when, like... My kind of post-tracks days. But Bleed American, you know. 
Mark did such an unbelievable job on that record. I mean, the the record, the that's the that's one of those you know that's another one of those perfect records that you describe that like it shows to me that it usually I mean you know a lot of times it's always the band it's always about the band and their songs but I think the mm-hmm. ones the moments that make things special are when there's perfect synergy in the band and there's perfect synergy in the studio perfect synergy between the band and the producer whether it's being the producers pushing them the right way or the producer just facilitating what the band's doing but okay computer is a perfect example of the you know the producer and for basically first time producer Nigel Godrich at the time mm-hmm. uh and the band you know he worked with them as an engineer on the bends at olympic he was an engineer at olympic you know yeah you know and jimmy world bleed american is is another perfect example of the producer and the band totally clicking on all cylinders and just making this pretty damn special record i'm with you so how about three favorite producers you know i thought of two but i don't know (laughs) if i thought of a third one but i mean my two favorites for sure are george martin for obvious reasons because the beatles are still my all-time favorite band and it's the perfect Mm -hmm. thing of like he knew exactly when to facilitate he knew when to when to not he 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 assisted the band and helped them expro- uh, you know expand their horizons he pushed them he challenged them and he knew when to when to back off you know you know that's mm. to me like the ultimate like you it doesn't get any better than that you know Nigel Godrich another one to mm-hmm. me and he came from the engineering side i think before that but has since done some incredible work aside from radiohead i mean he did my favorite solo paul mccartney record too going back to the beatles yeah agreed agreed i don't know about it i really didn't think of a third one you know okay i'll let you off the hook on that one (laughs) okay favorite record of recent times and what inspires you about it my my absolute favorite in the last 10 years is is amy winehouse back to black i know it's not 100 percent recent but man oh man the thing I think about that record, just the feel of that record, it's really crazy because, like, I know um, Mark Ronson. To me, you know, and what he does generally is not, it's it's more on the dance side of things. But the fact that he hired the Dap Kings to lend, you know what I mean? Like, the fact that he looked at what she was doing and what she wanted to achieve on that record and then went and hired an, a, a modern, you know, but old-time soul band... R&B band mm-hmm. and and try to capture it in the way that makes it sound like an old time record and just you know matched the the vibe to what she was trying to to do and not trying to force her into a box of saying like okay you've I mean her voice was like this timeless you know old soul like just incredible thing that you know transcended everything and the pain in her voice was like genuine and real and like you know like the fact that he just went and and actually facilitated that was mm-hmm. incredible so yeah it was definitely uh good work on the pre-production mm-hmm. side yeah wasn't it a lot of it was actually pre-production like most of the actual stuff that made the record uh, I, and the way i understand it too is like a lot of it was like they wrote stuff on an mpc and then had the dap kings just improvise off what the demo was that they wrote yeah on the MPC, whatever whatever but correctly. that's that's a perfect thing like that's a producer not making it about them. That's an that's such a classic mm-hmm. thing. Like that's I think that's such a the skill set that so many people that that I think you know I mean there's a lot of people that are doing great work, but I think mm-hmm. to me 
making it about that's such I, I, I try never like I said I, when I talk to the band about ideas and whatever it's not about me it's about them the fact that he you know like how many other like if she was with a, like a hip hop producer or she was with something and they, they were like let's just stick with the NPC it's like he said no it's not about me here's let's let's just get these guys let's get this soul band in here and let's get them to imp- mm-hmm. let's get them to give some real weight and authenticity to what this is and that's mm-hmm. to me just a, just the mark of a of a that's a that's just a sheer stroke of brilliance as far as a producer goes i agree so the last question is is stool self-promotion tell, tell us about what's been going on lately a quick aside here, because I've I really haven't been like you know I've been doing like little mixes here and there, but like the last record I did was the Butcher Babies, and that was like I finished that in like June, you know. Yeah, but that's okay. June, June's right. a short right. time well, ago. I just wanted to make sure it's not like well you know well the records yeah I got the no. just finished the Butcher Babies record and um, that's coming out I think uh, at the end of the month. And I've got uh, Insight coming back in, who I did the last record here. I'm excited about that, and uh, I'm just excited for the future. Yeah, I'm also uh, I'm also um, finishing up the Devil Driver uh, new album, which is uh, it's basically it's called Outlaws. It's going to be all outlaw country songs like Johnny Cash, Hank Williams, all done, all outlaw country songs done full-on just straight-up metal, molten metal. So um, there's a lot of cool uh, guest vocals on the tracks. We even got... I've, I've got actually... I'm really excited. Lee Ving from Fear is coming in to do uh, to do vocals. Oh, right yeah, now, you to said Lee. that. It's like really crazy. It's like I see the phone. It's like Lee Ving calling. It's like, oh, no big deal. Lee Ving from Fear. Like, what? <laughs> 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 uh, so I got Lee coming in. You didn't answer the phone? You didn't answer the phone and say, I don't no. care about you, fuck you, and hang up? I didn't say that, and uh, <laughs> I didn't tell him that I'm in Long Beach and I love living in the city either. But <laughs> mm, mm, yeah, mm. well uh, done, well done, especially for the four people <laughs> right? who get these jokes. But uh, I'm I'm actually <laughs> very excited. I mean, he's a legend, and uh, he's the coolest guy. When I talked to him on the phone, he's the nicest guy. So I'm I'm excited about doing vocals with him, uh, and then finishing mixing, and we'll have we'll wrap that up by the end of the month. And uh, yeah, I had the. Um, uh, in the last like six months, I had the Havoc record come out. Well, it was last year, late last year. Havoc record from Formicide come out. Uh, Frank Air on the Patience record, which I also play bass on and mixed. Um, really excited. Actually, really stoked on that record. It's one of my more favorite records I've, uh, I've mixed in the past few years. Dillinger Disassociation, uh, Giraffe Tongue Orchestra, Broken Lines. Yeah. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember the golden rule of the internet, that if you enjoy something you got for free, please tweet, Facebook, share, or tell your friends about it in whatever way you like to do that. Please check out Noise Creator's website and take a look around. We have tons of interviews, discographies, Spotify playlists from all the best producers out there on our service. If you're unsure about who your band should work with, we can help you get the best producer fit for your record. To keep up with us, follow at Noise Creators on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud, Tumblr, or Facebook. This podcast can also be found wherever podcasts are found, including iTunes and Stitcher. I'm your host, Jesse Cannon. I can be found on Twitter at Jesse Cannon or at jessecannon.com. Again, please help spread the word about this podcast and what Noise Creators does so we can keep this going. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network.